to the AT Tapes, a podcast from the Journal of Athletic Training. The goal of this podcast is to interview researchers and clinicians on current topics facing athletic trainers and discuss how we can utilize best practices to improve patient outcomes. My name is Lizzie Elder, and I'm the host of the AT Tapes podcast. I'm an associate professor and the program director of the athletic training program at the University of Alabama. My research area is on shoulder and elbow injury prevention in youth overhead athletes. You can follow me on Twitter at eelder85. Before getting started on today's episode, I wanted to remind everyone that all content from JAT is open access, meaning it is free of charge to all readers, thanks to funding from the National Athletic Trainers Association. Our episode today is a discussion with Hannah Robeson on secondary school socioeconomic status and athletic training practice characteristics. Welcome to the podcast, Hannah. Thanks so much. Happy to be here. So Hannah currently works as a research assistant at the Daedalus Center and works clinically at a high school. So before we get started talking about the article, we're going to learn a little bit more about her and kind of what her um, background and life looks like. So Hannah, why don't you start out telling us about your educational background? Uh, Sure. I did my undergraduate degree in athletic training at Ithaca College in upstate New York. And then I went and got my master's degree in kinesiology with an emphasis in athletic training at IU in Bloomington. Why did you become an athletic trainer? Um, It was a little bit of an accident. I um, kind of fell into this profession very luckily. Uh, I was looking through classes and health sciences professions at Ithaca College and stumbled upon the curriculum for athletic training and thought these classes just looked so cool. And I wanted to learn about kinesiology and biomechanics and um, right away in my first year. And so um, on a whim almost, I signed up for athletic training and found myself, you know, wildly passionate about this profession that um, I kind of fell into. And it's been history at that since then. So right now you're serving as both a research assistant and working clinically. So you've got a busy life. Um, So why don't you tell us a little bit about what your typical day looks like and how you manage these roles? Sure. Um, I do my best to log into Daedalus by 9 a.m. each morning. Uh, That depends on how late our baseball games typically go the night before, um, particularly in the spring. But um, usually between like 9 and 12 um, in the morning, I'm working on supporting our athletic trainers who serve as data reporters and our high school studies um, in communication with the other Daedalus staff who are all experts in epidemiology and how can we answer some of these big pressing questions to the data that we collect Uh, working on rules committee reports for the NFHS, which funds the high school Rio study, um, supporting other sub-studies in our nation surveillance program that look at specific questions that other researchers are interested in. Uh, Usually between 12 and 1, I log off and take my dog for a quick walk and then pack up a dinner and um, head to the school. And, you know, we do our documentation, we do our rounds to coaches, set up for practices or games. And then between 3.40 and 7 p.m. or 9 p.m., we're on-site for practice, rehab, injuries, and game coverage. So this might be a tough question, but what is your favorite part of being an athletic trainer? (laughs) Um, All of it, of course. Uh, No, I think my favorite piece is probably when it's a little bit calm in the clinic and I get to talk to the athletes who are doing rehab about what they want to do when they grow up. And um, when they ask me about 
you know, being an athletic trainer and I get to talk to them about going to class and doing their work and then getting to really know the kid. Um, and then of course, then getting to turn around and watch them perform on the field. I think that's really special for me. Well, thank you for sharing a little bit about you. Um, and now that we know about you, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the work that you've been doing um, and specifically a recent article in the JAT looking at secondary school socioeconomic status and athletic training practice characteristics. So before we really get into talking about the article, I think it's important to sort of set the stage, um, defining some terms, talking about why this is, is really an important topic. So if you can start out by telling us why you became interested in this research area and why this, this be, was such an important project for you to do. Yeah, um, I found myself always really fascinated by systems, particularly in healthcare, especially in um, undergrad when I took some political science classes just on the side. Um, and that kind of been molded into my understanding of athletic training and how we truly are a public health profession, particularly in the secondary school setting. Uh, so when I went to get my master's and work on my master's exit or my master's project, um, my advisor, Dr. Carrie Doherty at IU really pushed me to take my time and do some research on how do I connect the interest in public health and healthcare systems with athletic training, with the athletic training profession. And um, I kind of searched internally, searched externally and found some really interesting articles by Dr. Post, Dr. Crocious. Um, about socioeconomic status. And I really started diving into what socioeconomic status is, what the social determinants of health are, um, and how that can really connect to health outcomes. And since then, it's kind of been just fascinated at that point about how life and society can impact us orthopedically and on the athletic field. Well, it's always great when research and your profession and all the things align to make it be um, something that you're really passionate about. And obviously, I can tell um, that you care very much about this topic. So um, you're you're definitely in the right career field and career path. Um, so as you kind of already mentioned, you talked a little bit about social determinants of health and how that was a big understanding those and how that relates to patient care was really important for you. So can you just define social determinants of health and talk a little bit about why this is something that we need to consider, especially in clinical research? For sure. So uh, social determinants of health are, according to Healthy People 2030, which is from the U.S. Department of Health and Health Systems um, or Health Services, excuse me, uh, are five kind of factors that can be used to examine the health of a society. And those are the neighborhood and built environment. So roads, buses, parks, access to um, hospitals, those types of things, um, the health of the individual and the collective community, um, how healthy are you are as a person, but also is your community overall healthy? Some areas are overexposed to pollution. Some areas have different abilities to access care. Um, what is the environment around you in terms of health? Uh, the social and community context, that's our social services, um, education, you know, from elementary, from pre-K to middle school, high school, and collegiate or community college or trades, um, and then finally the economic stability of the community. So those five things um, are these key factors that they have found are related to the overall health of a community, so our social determinants of health. Um, and SES, social, socioeconomic status, is typically an attempt to try to measure those five things. And a lot of times in research, we see um, a lot of focus on the economic stability piece. Um, so median household income in schools, percent of students who qualify for free and reduced lunch. Um, in our study, we tried to take a little bit more of a novel approach using um, 
method in a lot of public health research developed by um, Samson et al., uh, which uses uh, several 12, we use 12 variables that try to capture all five of those social determinants of health. So we looked at things like um, proportion of African-Americans in the population, proportion of female-headed households, uh, proportion of individuals using public health insurance, um, employment status of individuals, types of health insurance coverage by age, proportion of households with children under the age of 18. So really trying to capture um, multiple factors of the society to really try to define so SES through the five social determinants of health. So within this project, um, the focus of it was really to look at secondary school socioeconomic status and how that influences the athletic training practice characteristics, like access to care, utilization, the care provided. Um, if you can kind of just summarize the main findings of the study and, and the things that um, you all really took away as, as novel and important findings. Yeah, I think the... Uh, our three kind of key pieces were that first schools in lower socioeconomic areas um, had lower contact frequencies, and those were defined as athletic training, um, facility visit days, services, IT services per athletic training, um, facility day visits, and then services per injury, um, IT services per athletic injury. Uh, and we found that across the board, those were lower in our schools that fell into that lower SES category, um, which matches a lot of the research that's already been out there about, you know, the lower SES the areas, typically the less access to athletic trainers athletes have. Um, we also then took another step as the nation's surveillance program collects services um, and treatments from athletic trainers and found that um, uh, there was a higher rate of services, statistically higher rate of services um, in affluent schools by AT evaluation, strapping, um, modalities, wound care, and gait and crutch training, but that there were no differences um, across the board, uh, affluent average and disadvantaged SES communities um, among therapeutic exercises and manual therapies. So that kind of tells us that, that when an athletic training athletic trainer is there and is accessible, even though those contact frequencies are low, lower when those contact frequencies are being provided, the um, rates of services that we know are effective in rehabilitation are comparable across the three groups. So that really showed to us that the fact that there were minimal differences in particularly therapeutic exercises, which we really emphasize in rehabilitation as an effective intervention. Um, once the athletic trainer is there, we can see that the services are similar, which means that the mere presence of having an athletic trainer and giving them the space and the time to do the intervention is almost an equalizer across those three pieces. But of course, the athletic trainer needs to have access. And then if we can increase the access um, and increase those contact frequencies, that would certainly be ideal. So one of the most important parts about research is then taking it and making it mean something and utilizing it to change um, practice or to change behaviors. And so, like you mentioned, the care that's being provided is comparable once it's being provided, but there's some difference between access and utilization. So what are your thoughts on where we begin to intervene? Do we start with educating the patients more on, on what the athletic trainer is? Do we start with the school districts or companies? Like where is, where is the place to start to begin to have the best impact? I think a big one is first and foremost recognizing the importance of the secondary school athletic trainer um, within our own profession for secondary school ATs, knowing that they are they could be a mitigating factor in 
um, barriers that typically surround access to orthopedic care. Um, and I think that's really important for athletic trainers to recognize that in a way we do serve as a public health profession and a liaison to the medical community and um, lowering costs, hopefully, um, and not only in the secondary school athletic training community, but also in the wider AT community. Um, and I think this research starts to build on what has also been put out there that ATs in high schools are really important for um, allowing not only our athletes that might go on to participate in higher level sport, but also those who are going to go on and just be humans and be healthy, active humans and keeping them healthy and not letting an injury get in the way, despite where they may live and the other access to care based on socioeconomic status. Uh, I think the other thing too to start is in conversations surrounding the cost of healthcare, be that you know, among friends, be that among coaches, be that among parents, um, as you were saying, school level, um, higher level, government level, um, identifying that the presence of an athletic trainer is probably going to lower costs for your student athletes. And it might not always be the most measurable piece, but in other ways we can measure and we can assess and say, regardless of SES, our athletic trainers are providing um, similar rates of interventions that are proven in the literature to be really effective. Um, and that if you're talking about saving on costs and lowering the cost of healthcare, when we look at the cost of an orthopedic injury, an athletic trainer can play a huge role. So while so to help our general community, having an athletic trainer at a high school is going to decrease that decrease that cost on the community collectively. And I think just using this research, using the research that this research has been built on, hopefully the next piece is hopefully inspired by this paper. Um, we'll continue building that argument that we can say that this is not only a great service to have for our athletes, but it's also very effective in decreasing costs and having to seek care outside of the school, which can often be cost prohibitive and less accessible to our athletes in lower SES settings in general. So you sort of already addressed this, but I think professional advocacy is such an important question and topic that I'm going to ask it again or talk about it more. So um, can you talk about how these findings, but also other findings from High School Rio and Nation projects or other projects that you're working on or have, have been a part of be used for professional advocacy, particularly in these lower socioeconomic schools? Yeah. So I think first and foremost, um, in High School Rio particularly, we try to give the data back to the schools as best we can. So all schools participating in High School Rio, we give them an individualized school report and they can take those injuries and take those, um, you know, the data they collected and show it to their administrators and say, this is what I've been doing, um, which we think is really important. Um, so that's a very much like straightforward piece. I think the other piece is that the athletic trainers that participate in these studies are, we all, they're also data reporters and they're collectors. And we use that data and provide it to researchers who publish in journals. We provide it to um, the NFHS who funds High School Rio. Um, and they use that data to make evidence-based decisions about changes in the rules and how do we make sports safer. And it's always present in that conversation that it is the athletic trainers who are collecting that data and providing it and allowing the NFHS to make evidence decisions, evidence-based decisions on how to make sports safer. So that's a really big piece just in itself by contributing to the data. Um, we are uh, allowing sport to be safer and it's very obvious in the conversation that it's the athletic trainers doing that. I think the more we can prove what athletic trainers are doing, the more we can identify the burden of athletic trainers, the more we can then start to connect it to the benefits it has for the community. 
And then, of course, uh, if they're able to participate uh, as athletic trainers, it's it's great to have more athletic trainers. But recognizing that ATs need the support from their administrators and their coaches to start to collect this data because it is a lot of work and it's a little tireless. Uh, but it certainly has really great impacts on identifying the burden, but then also um, proving us advocacy for saying, look at all the work that ATs do. And then they're also providing this data then to allow us to make sports safer. So can you talk a little bit about how an athletic trainer could become involved um, in being a data collector and reporter um, within this type of study? Um, it's pretty straightforward. Just uh, shoot me an email or um, shoot our study emails. Um, they're uh, nation at datalistcenter.org or highschoolrio at datalistcenter.org. Um, and then we can communicate with the athletic trainers on which study is the best one to get involved in. Um, and then they can just start reporting. Um, High School Rio does require you to get a signature from your principal and your athletic director. And then um, probably the biggest piece for athletic trainers to get used to when they start participating in the study are collecting athlete exposures, which is the um, number of athletes that are exposed to the possibility of being injured from warm up to cool down in practices and competitions. So that is probably the biggest adjustment because that's not something athletic trainers typically collect. Um, and usually that's done through working with assistant coaches or student managers or high school students who help out the athletic trainer to get those numbers. Um, and then you submit it to an online system. Great. Well, thanks for sharing that with us. And hopefully um, the number of people participating in that program continues to grow because the more people we have reporting, like you said, the better data we have and the more um, that helps in um, supporting the profession and, and what we do as athletic trainers day in and day out. We love having them. And we also really, really appreciate the efforts that our athletic trainers do. We know it's a lot of work to kind of add that to their um burden in the many directions ATs are pulled in. So um, if you're able to as an athletic trainer, great. And we really greatly appreciate the efforts of any athletic trainers who are participating in those studies listening to this podcast. So you're sort of in a unique role because you function as a clinical athletic trainer um, and a research assistant. And so how do these roles intersect and help you in the development of new research questions or, or serving as a better research assistant or better athletic trainer? I think uh, specifically when I start in the mornings, I get to look at that 10,000 foot view. I get to think about um, the epidemiology piece of sports um, and kind of see where the trends are. And that's kind of a really great way to start off. And then similar to why a lot of individuals like being athletic trainers and like learning in school is that they got to learn in the morning and then implement in the afternoon. And I'm kind of doing the same thing where in the morning I'm looking at injuries and thinking about high, higher level policy and changes and how do we communicate the data. And then in the afternoon, I get to go and I get to see the ground level piece and I get to be the athletic trainer in the sideline. I get to watch athletes have contact or um, hopefully not too often hurt themselves and say what was going on in that scenario that um, allowed that to happen. I think athletic trainers are, we are a profession that likes to think. We're a profession that likes to look at a scenario and try to make it better. And um, that's the same for me. And then I get to turn around and say, now let me take a step back and look at that higher level. So it's constantly intersecting. It's constantly thinking about questions that I have as a clinician and then thinking about how can I use the data that I interact with on a daily basis in the mornings um, to try to start to answer those questions. So as you have new questions and all of the people that you interact with have new questions, um, what do you think is needed to really continue to advance this area of research or answer those questions to really improve patient outcomes? 
Um, I think a big part is getting a better understanding of what's going on at the high school. So we would have loved to look at contact hours for the athletic trainers, looking at athletic trainer employment. So part-time versus full-time, um, we'd love to look at the number of athletes per athletic trainer. I think those types of pieces are really um, key factors when looking at this type of stuff and asking particularly these questions about how does school SES affect um, athletic training services. But I think also looking at how SES affects the athlete individually and how that affects the athlete's ability to recover from injury. So um, particularly looking at like orthopedic outcomes. And there's been a lot of really interesting research on, you know, number of physical therapy sessions based on insurance status, um, wait times and rates of surgery based on insurance status and SES. And I would love to kind of start to see that applied in the high school setting as well. Um, because we know that our athletes exist outside of the athletic field. And there's no way that when they go home, that home life isn't affecting, be it great or different or difficult or any form of it um, isn't affecting who they are and what they are and how they respond to injury and stress in life on the field. And when they're receiving treatment from the athletic trainer who uniquely to other health professions is so engaged and so intertwined with our athletes, um, our patients' daily life. Well, thank you so much for sharing that and talking about this article and kind of the broader impacts uh, of this research. Uh, hopefully we will get answers to all of those questions that you just um, said as we move in the future, because um, it's helpful for our patients and also for us as clinicians to know how to improve them, to improve uh, patient outcomes, but also as you know, advocacy for ourselves to show our value. So it's definitely is research that is needed and supportive of the profession. So as we finish up today, um, I just want to ask you to kind of give your take home point. So, you know, the big things, um, one to two things that you really would want somebody to remember on how this research can be used to improve patient outcomes. Yeah, I think um, the first thing that I definitely grew from working on this project and reading the research is true recognition that, like we just talked about, the athlete exists outside of the athletic arena um, and that our athletes run into barriers and burdens um, that we may not have experienced as clinicians and that it's really important as clinicians to identify it. Sometimes athletes have other things outside of their life that might be affecting their ability to perform rehab, to be engaged and it's a good reminder, I think, as clinicians, when we want to push our athletes to be the best they can possibly be, that um, there's other things that might be affecting them or that might be engaged with, particularly not only individually, but also within the community to be aware of and give us that space as clinicians to recognize that some things are outside of our control. Um, I think that additionally, improving access is super important, but also I think a key role here, and that's really highlighted in our research, is that when there's access, making sure that the athletic trainer has the space to practice the full scope of athletic training responsibilities and skills. So not only is the AT there to provide game coverage and practice coverage, but also is the AT there to provide that patient education to provide and prescribe athletic rehabilitation and preventative services and therapeutic interventions when an injury is um, sustained. So allowing ATs to not only be present, but also giving them the space um, to give that full scope of AT services. If the school's going to invest in having an athletic trainer, let's use that athletic trainer to what they can do to their best of the abilities. And then finally, I have, I have three, sorry. Um, finally, I think it's important to identify that ATs from this research and other research and um, looking at this is that 
ATs may play a central role in addressing the inequities we see in orthopedic care for our athletes. Um, we know orthopedics is a specialty profession and it's sometimes not the most accessible outside of the athletic training piece. And that when we think about the 7.9 million high school athletes that participate in sport, athletic trainers are there to help and can really address some of those barriers that those athletes and those individuals and those families may run into accessing care outside of that athletic training piece. Well, great. Well, thank you so much for sharing with us about this article and kind of the future of what, what this looks like and how as athletic trainers, we can better serve our patients and better serve the profession. So we really appreciate you taking the time to come on today. Thanks so much for having me. I hope you all found this podcast informative. That is it for today's The AT Tapes, and we look forward to our episode next month. Please remember to rate and subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Also, please follow the Journal of Athletic Training on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at JAT underscore NATA on all three platforms. Thank you for listening, and I hope you will join us for next month's episode of The AT Tapes. (laughs) 